chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 18 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives life to everyone, light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Today I want us to direct our attention to verse 14. We'll just take up one verse, and that is verse 14. Several weeks ago on Mother's Day, Catherine Bowser was here uh, to celebrate Mars as her mother. And as we were talking, if, if you don't know, Mar uh, Catherine grew up in this church. She's a daughter of this church. And she's down in Charlotte uh, as a minister of women's ministry. Uh, teacher in, in the church and so we were talking about teaching and she says I've been teaching through the book of John and in our conversation she says I always began each lesson the same way with the same verse it gives purpose and meaning to the book and to the verse that we're looking at today it's from chapter 20 and verse 31 but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now stop just a minute, and as I look around, uh, I see familiar faces, faces I've known, I've heard many of you's testimony, I've observed your Christian life. But may the Holy Spirit impress upon our hearts the necessity of having eternal life. And that we have come this morning and only those who 
have believed, who have received, who have been born of the Spirit of God, can have the peace of knowing that in eternity they will forever be with the Lord. So I beseech you, even at the beginning of this sermon today, that you would consider your condition. Where do you stand with the living God? I have a brief outline, and I've just broken this down into uh, phrases uh, A and the Word, and we'll talk about the Word. B became flesh. Under that, one and two, and dwelt among us. C, and we have seen his glory. One, as the only Son from the Father, the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. As I was preparing for this, uh, I happened upon a quote, and I may have used it, Vivian thinks I've used it, but I'll use it again in relationship to John. Uh, Augustine is attributed with this quote. John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. I certainly don't want us to drown in the book of John this morning. What I would like for us to do is to be able to say with the source, the pastor from whom I got this, an Anglican pastor, and let me quote to you as, uh, as he, where I got this. It, it is, he said, last Sunday's sermon covered the final verses of a two-year journey with some breaks as we preach through the Gospel of John. From swimming in John's deep pools to playing in the shadows, I emerged refreshed and invigorated by encounters with the incomparable Christ. My prayer is today that we will, by some, this will not be some theoretical, historical, or mere academic exercise. My prayer is today that we would, through the Word and by the breath of the Spirit, see this incomparable Savior, this glorious Lord, and as this pastor said, that we might emerge from the washing of the water of the Word, refreshed, invigorated by in our encounter with the risen, incomparable Christ. So let us begin by looking at the first word of the sentence. It's a simple word, three-letter word, conjunction, and. Used to connect words of the same parts of speech, clauses, and sentences that are to be taken jointly. It binds thoughts and concepts together. What is and joining? Is it joining the previous verse, not by the will of the flesh or so on, but by the will of God? Or is it we look at it, it says, and the word, I think the natural assumption is we go back to the first verse. Uh, the word in this verse, the word, the pronoun, and the pronoun he uh, is in the first four verses. John is pointing again here to the deity of Christ. The word who is the creator. The word who is life and life. I would present to you that verses 6 through 13 are a type of parenthesis where we are introduced to John the Baptist as here John the witness. 
word's relationship to the world, the word's relationship to his own, those he gives the righteous, the right and authority to become the children of God and the source of this transformation, namely the will of God. That is in this parenthesis. In verse 14, John brings to his readers a new and radical concept that apart from the work of the Spirit would boggle the minds of his readers. Boggles our minds even today after 2,000 years of church history. Even perhaps more mind-blowing than the concept of God being three persons and yet one God. And we discussed that in the past, how uh, this mystery that uh, common illustrations can't even begin to explain. <clears throat> that what he is tracing now is a new concept that this eternal God who was with the Father, who was with God in the beginning, creator, became flesh. We believe and confess by faith concerning the triune God uh, as a gift. It is a work of the Spirit through the Word and not a philosophical concept that we can deduce apart from faith and revelation. But again, as we're saying, perhaps more mind-blowing is John's claim that the Word became flesh. We'll not address the necessity of this becoming flesh because John doesn't do it here. Nor will we address how the Word became flesh, again, because John doesn't do it here. Unlike the other Gospels, the writer John does not speak of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He just begins with the Word, with Jesus as God, and moves after this parenthesis to Jesus becoming man, coming in the flesh. What we will address is the truth claim that God, the Son, became flesh. John is telling us that, that God's John is telling us that God's word, the Son, is his self-expression, and this self-expression, this person, has become flesh, has become a human being. Don, Wright, Don Carson writes concerning this, this is a supreme revelation. If we are to know God, neither rationalism nor irrational mysticism will suffice. The former reduces, and I want you to more. The former, this rationalism, reduces God to a mere object, and the latter abandons all controls. Before we dwell into what it means, let me point out that from John's day until today, there are those from without and from within the church that deny this reality. The claim is that the word that was with God, who was God, became a man. A real man of flesh and bones, a man with body and spirit, in all ways like us, without sin. From John's day into today, there were those who deny this fact because they will not and therefore cannot accept this truth. John writes in his epistle, pastoral epistle to the congregation, to, to the church, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know 
the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, <coughs> does not confess Jesus, is not from God. This is a spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the Word already. Today we have recited together the Chalcedonian definition, formula, a summary of the Chalcedonian Creed. It answers the difficult question, what kind of being is Jesus? Is he a mere man? Observation at that time would have told you, uh, you saw him grow weary. Those around him saw him grow hungry. They saw him uh, grow thirsty. Uh, and then eventually they would see him die. Or is he God? He has created all things. He's the creator of the cre creation that they observe. And he demonstrated in his life and in his signs control over the material world. He changed water into wine. He multiplied fishes and bread. He gives life and restores life. He is Lord over the fish of the sea, the wind and the waves and the burn, birds of the air. Disciples, as he walked upon the sea, what and calmed the seas, and what manner of man is this? It's a legitimate question. It's a question that we must answer for ourselves. He rode upon a donkey that had never been ridden upon before. And here we know that he had authority over demons and diseases. So what kind of being is Jesus? Uh, there's a long history, and I, this is not a history lesson this morning, but I think the historical context uh, uh, of where we are today and why we uh, recited the Chalcedonian Creed demands that we at least look at some of the claims that were made throughout history. The Ebonites, Ebonites denied that Jesus was God. Doceticism denied that Christ's body was real. Uh, Arianism and its variants denied that the Son has the same nature as the Father. Modalism is the belief that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirits are simply three different modes of God. Apollinarius spoke of Christ as a middle being, a mixture of deity and humanity. We could go on and we could list contemporary equivalents. But we can be thankful and worship Christ for fulfilling his promise. And what I mean by this is in spite of the attacks upon the, the, the word of God and the and attacks really upon the being of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can worship Christ this morning because he was faithful to his promise. What promise is that? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're here this morning because Christ, the Jesus, the God-man, was faithful to his word and to his promises and has brought us together this morning. These heresies have been addressed by different councils in different times, in different ways, uh, and these councils have given us creeds. In 451, the Council of Chalcedon gave us the definition we recited earlier. It is accepted 
by note, it is accepted by Catholic churches, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and much of Protestantism. There are Protestant churches who deny this doctrine. Briefly, it sets forth these three points, and I think what we read, as I heard you read it, it was just reinforced. I think it's, there's some language in there that perhaps demands exposition and explanation, but we won't go there. Just briefly, Jesus is a single person. There are not two Jesuses. Uh, Jesus Christ is perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. He is truly God and truly man. He is co-substantial with the Father regarding his deity. He is co-substantial with us in regards to his humanity. Many of you perhaps are thinking about Jesus coming in the flesh as our high priest and, and how he is able, because of that, to identify with our weaknesses. And so he serves as a great high priest. The two natures are united without confusion or change. In other words, his, I think I'm right on his divinity does not uh, subject his humanity to some sort of lesser humanity. And it doesn't elevate it above humanity. Nor does his humanity somehow uh, rob him of his uh, deity and his power. They are not a mixture, a blending or a mixture that would produce a being neither God or man. Or the two natures of Christ are united without division or separation. Finally, even after union, each nature retains its proper metaphysical attributes. If scripture is clear, and it is, then why these whacked out ideas? Where does this come from? I would suggest to you that men try to put the mystery in the incomparable, infinite creator under the scrutiny of the finite creature and human reason. Now, I had a close friend graduated from Chapel Hill with a degree in religion and philosophy. And he loved to talk about philosophy. I didn't graduate from Chapelfield with a degree in philosophy and, uh, and religion. Most of the time, I had no clue about what he was talking about. It's a different vocabulary. But what I did argue from, without much success, is that what we've talked about, the scriptures in John is an ocean deep enough for us, to, an elephant to swim, and yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. We believe in the clarity and that even a child can understand the fundamentals of the faith. And that it's not by ration or reason, but it's through faith. A faith that is a gift, a faith that comes by the word of God. Now I'm not disparaging the study of philosophy in, in any way. I'm not anti-intellectual. But I'm simply saying that for us, as we sit here this morning, my prayer is that I might not be able, is not that I might be able to argue all of the ins and outs of philosophy, but that I might know the Word of God. And in the Word of God, that I might have enough that would sustain my faith and protect me from subjecting Christ to 
by putting Christ in a test tube, if you will. Man rejects revelation for a reasoning that has been darkened by the fall. And that's a tragedy. The wisdom of man has been darkened by the fall. His understanding uh, is skewed. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it can't be restored. In other words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In Romans chapter 1, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. Earlier, it says that they withhold, they suppress the truth. Man would be, uh, man, if allowed, would through reason subjugate God to his reason. In other words, if I can figure it out and I can put, a, put God in a formula, something that I can control with, then I set myself above God. A believer, as believers, we walk by faith and not by sight or by human reasoning that has not been illumined by the Spirit of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later on, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or silliness to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Not my job. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would impress this upon us and that we would cherish this reality. The simplest of us in knowing Christ have the wisdom of God because we have the Holy Spirit. We may not have everything figured out, but God will give us what we need in every day, in every aspect of our life. We must resist the haughty temptation to reduce the infinitely incomprehensible person of the triune God to a mere formula. I appreciate, brothers and sisters, what one man has said. The word, he says God, but since our text, the word, or God, is to be adored and not analyzed. Uh, I know the, the temptation to the thrill of grasping new concepts and ideas, and I would simply warn Warn our, we, we, we should be warned not to be enticed or led away uh, by that which we can control. In John 20, 26 through 29, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, and there's a backstory to all of this, but he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, Thomas answered, you know, he said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not, and yet have believed. Jesus the God-man stood before Thomas that day in a human body. Fully human and fully God, as Thomas, as Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. 
As I was sitting this, words, as often happens when I'm preparing for message, the, the words of Thomas and of our brother Charles Wesley came to mind, and I opined, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glory of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Can you hear the echoes of what Thomas is saying in this next verse? My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of your name. Resuming our text, or returning our text, I'll read it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only did he become flesh, but in his flesh, John proclaims, after another and, and he dwelt among us or in the midst of us. In our first sermon, we uh, spent some time referring to the many texts in the, both the Old and New Testament that express God's desire to be a God to a people. And you will, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell with you. Jesus, uh, John records for us in chapter uh, 14, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It is the person of the Holy Spirit who not only dwells with us, but dwells in us. The Greek word translated dwelt comes from a word that simply means to pitch your tent. If you go to Calvin's uh, commentaries, that's, that's, that's how he refers to it. Pitch his tent, pitch his tent, pitch his tent. Other translators would translate, it, translate the word tabernacle. I like that. With this translation, we would read it, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. When I read this translation, my mind forms a mental picture of an illustration I've seen, perhaps you've seen in books. You see this great plain, and in the middle of this great plain, you see the tabernacle, illustrated. And surrounding the tabernacle, you see the pitched tents of the people of God. There are four, four tribes to the north, four tribes to the east, four tribes to the south, and four tribes to the west. Circled around in uh, the tabernacle where God has come to dwell with his people. But it was a temporary dwelling. Even the tavern, even the temple that was built later was a temporary dwelling of God. Why do I say that? It's because the glory of God left. And Jesus, as he dwelt among these disciples, he dwelt among us, it was temporary. Right? He left. You read in Acts, and when he had said these things and they were looking on, he lifted up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Yet we said that it's temporary, but there's a promise coming. This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming again. This is the blessed hope. 
It may not be in our lifetime. We may not see it. Though I, I hope he comes before we leave today. It's a mixed, it's a mixed emotion because there are people that I want a little bit longer to see if they'll come to faith in Christ. I have children, grandchildren that I want to see saved. May not see it in my lifetime. But above that, Lord, come. Even so quickly, come, Lord Jesus. One last word concerning his desire to dwell with his people. The desire is nowhere more clearly expressed than in Jesus' pre-crucifixion prayer, often called his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I desire. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who we confess, who we worship, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, our King. And he prays to God his Father, and he says, I desire that they also, speaking of you and I, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And yet there's another hand. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory. Here I think, brethren, I appreciate the King James translation who renders it this way. And we beheld his glory. There's a difference, really, isn't there? As, we, as you think about that word, is there a difference between glancing at something and maybe seeing something in a passing moment? and beholding. I don't know what the etymology of the word is a Greek word. Well, I do have the definition here. Let me see if I can find it. Strong's lexicon offers this following. A prolonged form of a primary, primary verb to look closely at. That is, by implication, to perceive really, literally or figuratively, and by extension, to visit, to behold, to look upon. And really, I think it even goes beyond it, is to appreciate and to accept. Our prayer today is that we come together through the preaching of the word, we might behold something of the glory of the ascended Christ, who is one day coming again. But they beheld his glory. Through the remainder of the gospel, the remainder of this book, what he has summarized in this prologue, he will give us a fuller account to all that Jesus said and all that he did. As I read this, I couldn't help but think that Jesus came as what? A suffering servant. Uh, Isaiah says that when we looked at him, there was no beauty. He, he was despised and rejected of men. Uh, and yet John, writing 30, 40, 50 years after the resurrection of Christ, looks back. And as he recounts the words of Christ, and he relives in his mind, and as he led along by the Holy Spirit, he writes... And he sees perhaps what he didn't see at the time, or if he saw it at the time, did not fully appreciate that which is so glorious in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shares some of that with us here. So John continues by pointing to what he beheld. And we have beheld his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, I like the rendering of the King James. It renders... And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. I don't have time to 
go into all of this, but he's the eternal, eternally begotten Son of the Father. I understand that as much as I understand the Trinity and as I understand the God-man. But it's taught in Scripture, and by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he has generated and he has gifted me and, and, and you with faith. John points to the glory of the uniqueness of Jesus' sonship and his relationship to the Father. Second, he points to Jesus' fullness. We, that is John and the other apostles, beheld the fullness of the grace of grace and truth. John Thayer defines fullness as perfection, as completeness. If it's an object, it's the total covering of that object. If it's a vessel, it's the total filling of that vessel. There's nothing incomplete. There's nothing lacking. It's, it's perfect. Again, when they, well, it is a hymn. It's an Old Testament hymn. As I was reading these words, I couldn't help but think of the 23rd Psalm. It goes beyond fullness, doesn't it? It says, Thou preparest a table before thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. <laughs> our minds, our souls, our bodies cannot contain the uh, overflow of the grace of God. We get taste and see that the Lord is good. Eat and dwell and concentrate and, and savor all that he is. But even when we do, we would never exhaust the fullness of who he is in grace and truth. John says in two verses down, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In conclusion, let me give you this invitation and warning from John chapter 12. Here's the invitation. While you have the light, and we're speaking of the time before Christ, but I think it applies to where we are this morning. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Now here's the warning. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, Lord, who has believed <clears throat> what, what he heard from us, so that so to him, so to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's from Isaiah 53. Then again, he quotes from Isaiah, he says, He has blinded their eyes and harden their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn. And I healed them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What glory do we seek? What glory do we honor? What glory do we appreciate? 
can't manufacture it. I can't manufacture it. But by God's promises and by his grace and by his mercy to us, through his word, we go to our homes as we wake up in the morning, when we take over the word and pray, God, show me yourself in your word. Speak to me. That's his desire is to speak to us and show me your glory that I might worship you and in doxology that I might then serve you. My gracious God and Father, I pray even now that you would seal these things up to our heart. As always, Lord, we pray that you would remove anything that is of error and that we would be left with really your words and the truth that we find in them. We do pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as individuals and in our church as a collective. That, Father, individually and collectively we might show forth the glory and the majesty of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.